So as I stand here this morning, there is major hurricane recovery going on in the Northeast and along the Gulf Coast. Over 80 people died from Hurricane Ida that struck those areas just a few weeks ago. There's also a drought going on in Vietnam that will most likely kill 9,000 people before the year is out. You don't really hear about that one on the news. They just can't get access to the water and the food that they need. And so uh, before 2021 is up, 9,000 Vietnamese people uh, will most likely die because of this drought. There's an earthquake in Haiti uh, that occurred in late August. It's taken the lives of over 2,000 people. There's still 350 people missing as we stand here this morning. And of course, on top of all of this, how could we um, not mention the fact that 4.5 million people have reportedly died from COVID-19 in the last 18 months, and that includes 653,000 Americans. And so what do we do with all that? There's always been horrible things happening all around the world. I mean, it's, it's nothing new. Um, if you go back and you just read history, uh, whether it's natural disasters or it's evil things inflicted upon the world by human beings, there's always been uh, copious amounts of evil to comprehend uh, out in the world. But now we see it all. You miss nothing, right? Uh, it's rare that anything happens in the world and you don't hear about it. And if you don't hear about it, it's probably because you've chosen not to hear about it. It's not because the information is not available to you. We have these computers in our pockets and they broadcast every tragedy, every calamity to us uh, every day. It's in our social media news feeds. It's in our, uh, it's, it's in our Instagram feeds and Facebook and uh, it's also on our televisions. Uh, it's scrolling across the bottom on the ticker. There is no isolation from evil. We see it all play out. There is no isolation from death. We see it all around us. So it causes a lot of people to ask, where is God in all of this? Where is he at? And maybe you've been asking a similar question over the last 18 months. The earth has fallen. Sin has ushered death into the world, brought a curse upon the entire scene. And this has always perplexed people uh, who believe in God and yet struggle to make sense of what they're seeing around them. You can read through the Bible and you can see the people of God struggling with what to make of God's goodness and the suffering that they are experiencing or that they are seeing. In Job 13, verse 24, Job says, Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? This is him speaking to God. In Psalm 10, verse 1, the psalmist says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourselves, uh, yourself in time of trouble? Psalm 13, verse 1, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? The 44th Psalm, verse 24, why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? And then in Psalm 77, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? I think God was good to include those words in the Bible from the people of God who have struggled with these things over the years because as you ask those questions, you can then look into the Scriptures and you can see that you're not the first one. 
And you can look into the Scriptures and find answers. But for centuries, the people of God have struggled with what to make of what they see in the world. It's also consumed the thoughts of people who do not believe. The philosopher John Stuart Mill, who was an ardent critic of Christianity, looked at all of this and he said, well, God cannot be good and all-powerful at the same time. If he's good, then he's going to stop the pain and the suffering and the tragedy that exists in the world. If he can stop those things and he doesn't stop those things, then he's not good. If he wants to stop those things but cannot stop those things, then he's good, but he's not all-powerful. And Mill thought that he had caught Christianity by the toe and that it couldn't get away, that he had found God out. But what he failed to understand and what many people failed to understand and what maybe even many Christians fail to realize when they question the Lord are these realities. One, that God is holy. And two, human beings are sinful. The things we see in the world are a result of sin and a result of the death that is brought into the world. And until the world is redeemed at the time which God has chosen, sin and death will continue to inflict pain and suffering on this world. That does not make God less holy, and it does not make God less good. It just means that the time for all things to be made right has not yet come. And if you have not repented of your sins, you should be thankful for that. Because if that time had already come and you had not repented of your sins yet, you would be in heaps of eternal trouble, which is exactly what Jesus is going to tell us this morning. We're still in a section of Scripture where Jesus is teaching a large crowd, but this ends today. It it wraps up. So what started in chapter 12, uh, verse 1, and stretched uh, all the way through chapter 13, it ends here in chapter 13, verse 9, today. And in this passage, as he is teaching, it seems some people are bringing up an incident that has occurred, and they seem to be asking Jesus, hey, why did this thing happen? At the very least, they want to know his feelings on it. And Jesus' response is an answer that every human being, believer or unbeliever, uh, perplexed by the events of this fallen world needs to hear. So let me read for us Luke 13, starting in verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Shalom fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure." Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The situation that's brought to Jesus' feet in Luke 13 is a brutal one. So let me just paint a picture of what's occurred. Pilate was the fifth Roman governor of Judea, very famous for his tangles with Jesus at the end of Jesus' life. He was appointed in 26 AD. He was in office for about 10 years 
And he was known for being a very boastful and proud guy. He was known for being a very cynical man. Uh, he was also known for the fact that he could not make a decision. He vacillated constantly. And he had a really contentious relationship with the Jewish people. Uh, one time he actually marched troops into Jerusalem and he had these banners unfurled. And the banners were bearing uh, offensive images to the people of Jerusalem. And so the Jewish people protested to the point that Pilate said, you stand down or I will kill every single one of you. And they called his bluff. And they said, we don't think you have the guts. And so we will not stand down. And he didn't have the guts. He backed off, and, um, and, and they were right. On another occasion, he angered them because he took money from the temple treasury. So he went to the Jewish treasury in the temple, stole the money, and used it to pay for an aqueduct bringing water into Jerusalem. So just imagine if this morning, like the board of supervisors from York County walked in, all right, demanded the offering plates, took it, took all the money and then used it to like, you know, help with the, the water system in York County, how you would feel about that, okay? So the Jewish people were very upset. Again, they rioted in protest. This time, Pilate did not back down and he killed many of them in the streets. So the relationship is not good. Now, on this occasion that's being brought up to Jesus, there's some Galileans. We don't know the whole story, but they were probably involved in some political efforts to overthrow Rome. They were tracked down by the Romans, and they were tracked down on temple grounds, and his soldiers slaughtered these people in the place of sacrifice. Okay, So came into the church building, if you will, slaughtered them in the place of sacrifice, and then their blood, I, I, I don't mean to be graphic, but their blood as it sprayed probably mixed in with the, um, with the sacrifices that were being made on the altar. An unfathomable situation for the Jewish people. I mean, these guys were standing up for Israel, and they were worshiping God, and they ended up massacred on the altar. And so what's the deal with that? So they're clearly struggling with this, um, this, this idea that this happened. They're, they're struggling to reconcile it to God's goodness and what they believe God wanted for his people. And in particular, what they were wondering is, what sort of sins did these people commit if this happened to them? Because the Jewish people had a theology in the first century where if there was suffering, that meant that God was judging somebody for sin. Always. You see this in John 9. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. So this was the theology they had. Somebody sinned. If there's something bad happening in your life, you did something, or somebody that you love did something. So what did these guys do to suffer a fate like this? And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, responds to them in verse 2 and says, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And he answers his own question in verse 3, and he says, I tell you, no. And so Jesus rejects this idea that these Galileans suffered this fate because they were worse sinners than anybody else in the temple or anybody else in Jerusalem or for that matter, anybody else in the world. He rejects the, the direct correlation between something they did and the fate they suffered. Now look, is it true that sometimes people do things that are sinful and stupid and God immediately lets them feel the consequences of their actions? 
even to the point of death? Absolutely that's true. You can see that in Acts 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only uh, a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. God takes church discipline seriously, clearly, as this man dies for his lie. And so he sinned, and there was immediate consequences. Um, Acts 12, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So clearly, committed sin can have immediate consequences and immediate judgment. There are sins that we commit that bring built-in judgments with them. Like if you spend your life abusing alcohol, um, then that can lead to cirrhosis of the liver. Many times it does. If you live a life of sexual promiscuity, that can lead to sexually transmitted diseases, even life-threatening ones, and other consequences. If you live a life of criminal behavior, that could lead you to imprisonment or worse. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about the long-term built-in consequences of sin. We're talking about sudden disasters, sudden tragedies, sudden calamities that fall on people, and we don't understand why. Jesus gives another example of a disaster like this in verse 4. He says, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Shalom fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Shalom was a section of Jerusalem near the southeast corner of the city, and there was apparently a tower there, possibly uh, a tower that was being uh, used to, to help with this aqueduct system that I mentioned before. But there's a tower there, it fell down, and there were 18 people who were probably just walking down the street, and boom, tower falls on them, they're dead, their life is over. Everybody would have heard about this. This would have been a big deal. Why did this happen? Is it because they are worse sinners than everybody else? And again, Jesus says no. And in both verses 3 and verse 5, Jesus has this phrase for his hearers. He says, But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so what's his point here? The point is that people who die in calamities and die in disasters and die in tragedies are no worse than the people who survive them. That's his point. If the Tower of Shalom fell on the guy next to you and you somehow walked away unscathed, it isn't because you're more holy than the guy that was next to you. It's because God in His mercy sustained your life another day. In His sovereign wisdom and in His sovereign plan, your number was not up. You can go all the way back to the garden. What did God say when he warned Adam about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? If he ate of it, what's going to happen? You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. 
In the day you eat of it, you will die. In Genesis 3, Adam eats from the tree. His sin ushers death into the world. But Adam does not die. Why? Because God in His mercy and in His grace lets Adam keep breathing. That His mercy and His grace might abound, He gives him more days. In fact, He gives him 930 years. Did Adam deserve to die as soon as he sank his teeth into that fruit? 100%. He deserved to die on the spot and to go back to the dirt he was made from. Did he die? No. Why? Because God is gracious and merciful. And he spared his life. So back to today. Over 600,000 people have died from COVID-19. You are here this morning. They are not. Is it because you are more righteous than them? No. That's Jesus' answer. We're all sinners. None of us deserve life. But in His great mercy, God has not called your number yet. Over the last couple of weeks, September 11th documentaries have been on our TV and the images of the last 20 years have become fresh to us all over again. Um, You will never forget that day. I will never forget that day. I can tell you exactly where I was at when I found out what was going on. I just walked into the gym at Powhatan High School. Were the people outside the buildings taking the videos that we watched more righteous than the 3,000 poor souls that died inside of the World Trade Center? Absolutely not. In God's mercy, He spared them that day. And so if all this is true, and you and I are just as sinful as the 80 plus people who died in Hurricane Ida, or the 9,000 who are going to die in Vietnam from a drought this year, what should our response to these things be? For so many in the world, the response is to question God. It's to turn their mouth against God. It's to challenge the goodness of God. To question whether or not God knows what He's doing. Jesus says you should do just the opposite. You should not turn your back on God. Instead, you should turn your heart toward God. You should recognize that you are a sinner, that you also deserve death, and you should repent of your sin and place your trust in the Lord before it's too late. That should be your response. The word repent that Jesus uses here, it comes from a Greek word that literally means to change one's mind. We need to change our minds about sinfulness and about what we deserve. We need to stop trying to justify ourselves. We need to stop trying to convince ourselves and the people around us of our own goodness. We need to admit to the fact that we are depraved sinners and that we deserve death. We need to change our mind about God and what He deserves. He is not someone to be questioned. He is not someone to be challenged. He is not someone to be second-guessed. He is someone who deserves all praise and all glory and all honor. should be ascribed to Him. And we need to agree with God that our sin is evil and that His punishment of death is a worthy punishment. And then we need to agree with God that He is holy and just to punish us for our sins. We need to agree with God that we are powerless to change our standing with God with our own strength and with our own works. We need to agree with God that we are guilty unless He does something to change our hearts. And what He did to change our hearts and what He did to change our standing with them is He sent 
the one who's speaking in this text. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. The only one who truly did not deserve to die at the hand of Pilate's men, who would not have deserved to die if the Tower of Shalom had fallen on him, was Jesus. And he didn't deserve to die when Pilate ultimately turned him over to the people and they crucified him on a Roman cross. But he did it. He laid down his life of his own accord to take the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin. And then he rose from the grave victoriously and he crushed sin and death and Satan on your behalf. And if you agree with God that only Christ can save you and you turn away from sin to Christ and you trust in Him to save you from your sin, then you will be forgiven and you will have eternal life. And even if the Tower of Shalom falls on your head, you will spend your eternity with Jesus because of what He has done for you. And Christ wants us to know this and He wants us to know how urgent it is. The reality that He's putting forth in this passage, I mean, listen, this is black and white. It's clear, right? He's letting the people know. You you repent or you're going to die. You're going to die and and you're going to be dead forever. It's going to be eternal death. This is urgent. And this could happen to you at any point. Tower could fall in your head tomorrow, so you better be right with God today. You better repent now. Pilate's men might bust down the church door tomorrow and chop you down between the altar and the door, so you better repent now. All of us are going to face death at some point. Time is running out. Don't worry about what sin was in the hearts of other people that have suffered under calamities and disasters. Check the sin in your own heart. Make sure you have repented before your own calamity comes and takes you away from here. This is what Jesus' message is. This is how He closes the sermon. Right? I mean, it's been one long sermon from chapter 12 on. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and, and, and don't live fearing men and, and have fear of God and acknowledge Christ before the world and, and He will acknowledge you in heaven. And, and don't be all caught up in money and don't be anxious and make sure you're ready for His return. And He's come not to bring peace but division. And, and then He gets to the end of it and He says, repent or perish. This is how He closes the sermon. Then he gives an illustration here in verses 6-9 through to underline his point. In the parable, there's a man who plants a fig tree in his vineyard, which seems odd because you don't grow figs in vineyards, you grow grapes in vineyards, right? But what Israelite farmers would do is if they had a vineyard, they worked really hard to make this soil um, fertile, right? And so they're like, well, you know, while I'm at it, let me grow some figs. And so they would go ahead and use that soil to try to produce some other fruit uh, to be able to eat and sell while they were at it. And so he comes to get fruit from this fig tree that he has planted. There's none there. So he says to the vine dresser, cut it down. It's just taking up space. It's been three years. Nothing's happened. It's a waste of good space. And, and the man bargains with the farmer and says, look, one more year. Come on. Let's dig around. it. Let's throw some manure in there. Let's see if it bears figs next year. If it doesn't, we'll cut it down. So what is this parable about and how does it relate to what we've seen in the first five verses of chapter 13? Well, I want you to understand this, that if you're here this morning and you're a Gentile living in 2021, which is most of you, a non-Jewish person living in 2021, okay, the parable is actually not for you specifically. 
Okay. Now, is there a general principle we're going to be able to glean from it? Absolutely. But this was a parable for the Jewish people standing there listening to Jesus in the first century. The fig tree in the parable is Israel. For three years, Israel has had the Messiah that they have been waiting for walking around in their midst, and yet for the most part, they're still unbelieving. Except for a small remnant, they're still unbelieving. And so Jesus' point in this parable is to warn these people, you are living on borrowed time. You need to repent now. You need to believe now before the tree is cut down. This parable's warning is right in line with a prophecy from Isaiah 700 years before Jesus preached this sermon. Isaiah 5, starting in verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Those are not edible. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What, was more, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked forward to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Israel, in this text, is the vineyard people of Israel had received a steady flow of blessings from the Lord. They were chosen, they were given the law, they were given the prophets, they were given the Messiah who fulfilled the law and the prophets, and despite those spiritual privileges, just like the fig tree, they were not bearing fruit. Not edible fruit. Not fruit that could sustain. They were not producing life. So Jesus is preaching the same message from Isaiah. They needed to realize they are all sinners and that they need to repent now or else they will face God's judgment at some point. It could be tomorrow. They'll face His judgment as individuals and they will face His judgment as a collective nation. And do you know what the sad reality is? Is that Israel as a whole did not repent. Again, there was a remnant of believing Jewish Christians who received Christ as the Messiah and realized who He was, and they repented. In that text that we read to start our service this morning, right? They're cut to the heart, and they cry out to Peter, what shall we do? And he tells them to repent and to be baptized. Most of those were Jewish people, so there was a remnant that believed. But there was not this massive national repentance by the Israelites And just four decades after Jesus preaches this sermon, Israel would be destroyed by Rome in 70 A.D. The Romans waited until Passover, trapped all the Jewish people inside the city, deprived them of food and water, burned the temple to the ground. The historian Eusebius says that Rome chased down every male descendant of King David and killed him. And Josephus, who's another historian, calculated that over one million people died in the siege. Jewish people. It was a holocaust. Like much of Israel's spiritual story, it's a tragic tale. 
In this parable, was Jesus warning them, urging them to repent before it's too late. Now, in light of what Jesus has taught here, in verses 1-5 through and in this parable, I think there's some general principles for us to consider this morning as we close up. Number one, those who fail to bear fruit worthy of repentance will be cut down in judgment. Israel did not bear fruit that proved true, real repentance had taken place, that proved there was any trust in the plan of God for salvation, in His Son. Their lack of fruit ultimately brought judgment. It's not different for you. It's not different for me. We can give lip service to the idea of being a repentant Christian all day long, but what does the fruit of your life actually say? What comes out of your life? Does your life produce love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Is this what's coming out of your life? Or does it produce the works of the flesh? Does it produce sexual immorality and impurity, sensuality and idolatry, sorcery and enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries and dissensions and divisions? Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Any of us could point to isolated moments and say, well, you know, this was a good day. Just like there are repentant believers here this morning who could point to some isolated moments and say, this was not good. But we're talking about the overall melody of your life. What is the rhythm of your life? What consistently comes out of your life? People who have repented of sin and have entered into a relationship with the holy God of the universe have a moral change that takes place, a moral transformation that takes place over time. Some of it's immediate, some of it takes longer, but that's called sanctification. It's God separating you from the sin that once held you in chains. The fruit of the Spirit who dwells in your surrendered, repentant, believing heart, is that what's coming out of your life? Or is it the works of the flesh? Because in truth, your heart is still in those chains. It's still enslaved to sin. If Israel's unbelief and lack of fruit landed them under the acts of God's judgment, what's different about you? Secondly, judgment has to be considered near. In light of what Jesus has said, judgment must be considered near. The tree was going to get cut down in a year, right? The Tower of Shalom fell on those people in an instant. Hebrews 9, verse 27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You die, and then you stand before God in judgment. This is a promise from the Bible. This is what's going to happen. You can think that's not going to happen, just like I could stand in the middle of of 64 East and think that a a truck won't hit me, but if I stand there long enough, that's going to happen. That's the reality. I could try to say that's not going to happen, but that's the reality. You can try to say that you will not stand before God in judgment, but what the Bible is telling us is it's going to happen whether you're in denial about it or not. Not one of those 18 people thought they would die that day when they left their house and ended up with a tower on their heads. Two years ago, There were 600,000 Americans walking around, 600,000 plus, who had never even heard of something called COVID-19, had no idea that it was going to take them out of this world. 
in the next two years. Never even heard of it. Right? And even when we did hear of it, we thought, well, that probably won't get here. That'll probably stay over there in those other countries. It's not going to come to America. I mean, if COVID's shown us anything, it's that we are not in control. You could live your life and you can do all the things that are right and you can have all your affairs in order physically, mentally, spiritually, financially, right? And then a global pandemic can come up on you out of nowhere and just take you out. We don't know when our number's up. So when we think of the judgment of God, it would be really silly to think of it as being something that is far away because it could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. Jesus could come back this afternoon. I don't think that's likely theologically. I think there's some things that need to take place that the Scriptures point us to. But could it happen this afternoon? Yeah, because I could be wrong about my theology. I don't think it's likely, but it could. The urgency of our repentance should match up with the nearness of His judgment. Repent now. You don't know how much time you have left. And then lastly, I think our response to disasters should not be to question God, but to be, should be for us to examine our faith and share our faith. COVID's not going to be the last pandemic that touches this world, most likely. Right? There was others in the past, and unless the Lord returns beforehand, there will be others in the future. And certainly Ida is not going to be the last hurricane. There's going to be more earthquakes, more hurricanes, more disasters, more diseases. 9-11 is not going to be the last dark day for America. Afghanistan won't be the last foreign policy debacle. And as these things come across our TVs and our social media feeds, our response should be two-pronged. Number one, we should ask ourselves, am I right with God? Is my life producing fruit that is worthy of repentance? Have I repented? Is that evidenced by how God is at work in my life? I'm not calling on you to question your salvation. I'm not going to use that language. To question your salvation, I think you're really doubting if what God's done in you is enough to save you. I don't want you to do that, but I want you to examine your faith to see whether or not what you have is actually a saving faith. If you actually do believe with all of your heart that what God has done is enough to save you. And the reason I say examine your faith and and use that language is it's the language of the Bible. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you indeed, uh, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So examine your faith, make sure you're in the faith, but secondly, if judgment is near, then we need to tell people about Jesus. If death could come at any point, or Jesus' return could occur in the very near future, we should be vigilantly heralding the good news of the gospel with our friends and with our family. We should be asking ourselves that question we talked about a few weeks ago. Who is closer to knowing Jesus because of the efforts that I've made this week, because of how I've prayed for them this week, because of how I've cared for them this week and reached out to them, or because of how I have shared the gospel with them this week? Because when we look around, everybody around us with breath in their lungs is living on borrowed time by the mercy of God. And the only hope they've got is if they repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus. That's the only eternal hope that they can have. 
and we know about it. We've heard the sermon. Right? We, we have heard Jesus say, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You will all likewise perish. And so you, you go to the mall, you go to your workplace, you go to the, the fall soccer game, you go to wherever you go. You go stand in your backyard and you look at the neighbors that live around you. They will all likewise perish unless they repent. And so we've got to tell them. And just like now is the time to repent, now is the time to pray and to care and to share. Let me close with this. On October 8th, 1871, a fire began to burn in Chicago. And as it burned, D.L. Moody was finishing up his sermon for the night. And he was preaching to a crowd of about 2,500 people. And he asked them, what will you do with Jesus? And then he said, I'm going to be back here next Sunday night. And I want you to spend this whole next week thinking about that question. What will you do with Jesus? And then you come back here in a week. And I'm going to offer you the opportunity to repent and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. As he wrapped up the sermon, everybody could hear the fire engines. The fire would burn for the next two days until October the 10th. 100,000 people were left homeless. That's a third of the city of Chicago was left homeless because of the fire. 18,000 buildings burned down, including 50 churches to the ground. 300 people lost their lives. It's the sort of event that Jesus is talking about in Luke 13. And Moody really wrestled with this fact that he gave his listeners a week to repent. He wondered how many of his listeners may have died in the fire or become homeless or forgot anything that he said in the message. So this is what D.L. Moody said about his sermon. He said, I want to tell you of the one lesson I learned that night. That is, when I preach, I press Christ upon the people then and there and try to bring them to a decision on the spot. I would rather have that right hand cut off than to give an audience now a week to decide what to do with Jesus. It's the lesson of Luke 13. Repent now, or you will likewise perish. Draw near to the Lord while He is near. Because at some point, it's going to be too late. Don't get me wrong. I believe salvation is in God's hands. I don't think that there's anybody that God wanted to save that didn't get saved because the fires burned that night and D.L. Moody didn't give the right invitation. Okay. That being said, we still see these two parallel truths in the Scriptures. On one hand, God is sovereign. and the other hand, man has to repent. And we've also seen these two parallel truths in the Scriptures that God is the one who does the saving, but yet He has told us to go. And so there is urgency. We go now. We preach now. We call on people to repent now. And if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus... Look, his words are clear. Repent now or you will likewise perish. So I urge you, I urge you not to consider the judgment of God as to be something that is far off, but that you would turn from your sin today and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I would love to pray with you, to not ask you to come back next week and tell me what you're going to do with Jesus, but to do something with Jesus today, to repent, to surrender to Jesus today. And so um, there's a couple of ways you could go about doing that. Number one, um, less confrontational way. 
okay, and maybe this is what you would choose, is to uh, text or email us at connect at seafordbaptist.com, and you just you can put that email in your little text uh, box on your phone, uh, or you can email us there and say, I want to have a relationship with Christ. I want to repent. I'm not totally sure what to do. I'd love for somebody to help me with this. And myself or, or Pastor Ben or Pastor David will get back in touch with you, and we will walk you through the steps of becoming a Christian. More confrontational way and a quicker way would just be for you to walk up to me today at the end of the service. I'm going to be at the little table out there next to the pastor sign in the lobby and say, I want to know more about becoming a Christian. I, I, I want to repent today. And I would love to stay here as long as we need to to talk about that this morning. All right? Um, maybe this morning the urgency of what we've talked about has caused you to think about some other things. Maybe the urgency of what we've talked about this morning has caused you to think about church membership and to say, man, it's important we get the gospel to people. I want to be um, committed as a church member with other Christians that are taking the gospel to people urgently. Uh, we would love for you to join at Seaford Baptist, and you can send uh, an email or text to the same email and say, I want to join um, or you can fill out our Connect card that was in your worship guide, and you can just write in on there, I'm interested in church membership, and we'd love to speak with you about that. But whatever God is laying on your heart, now is the time. Do not wait. Do, don't put him off, but instead surrender yourself to the will of the Lord. Let's pray together.